populist parties throughout Europe, they all feed themselves on the same reasons. And there is a growing discontent with the political establishment on the part of, of citizens. The, an increased perception on the part of, system and of, of citizens that the political system is controlled by a few, by an elite, uh, against the, the interests of the overwhelming majority. All populist parties in Europe feed themselves upon this. But then uh, the concrete political agendas and the ultimate goals vary. Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Inoculation. My name is Eva von Schaper, and I'm hosting this podcast together with Diva Repichkaita. Hi, listeners. Who did we just hear? This is somebody that you invited. Yes, yeah, so I had a chance to go to a talk by Professor uh, Poyarish Maduro, and, and he agreed to be a guest on our podcast. So we asked him to comment on the Portuguese and also the more general European uh, uh, political system and the challenges it faces from uh, disinformation and uh, polarization. Okay, so he actually, what he can tell us is he can give us some insights on one of our topics in the season, which is disinformation on the political fringes. He can give us an overview and he can also help us understand Portugal a bit better. Is that right? Exactly. And Portugal is known for having a different uh, political spectrum compared to many countries to the north and west of Europe, uh, because for a very long time it didn't have any far-right presence and the, the general sort of center of the political spectrum is more to the left uh, in Portugal. Uh, you can find more information in the episode we did on Portugal last year after the Portuguese election. Okay, but but this election was actually quite special last time. Exactly, because from one member of the far right, uh, which was kind of the odd one out, um, the Portuguese parliament went on to have uh, 12 of them, and this really surprised a lot of analysts uh, and there were different theories uh, that maybe the far-right leveraged uh, social media much better than uh, all the other parties. Okay, but we can talk about that. We can, we'll hear what Professor Maduro has to say a bit later. First, um, let's let him introduce himself. So I'm Miguel Poyares Maduro, and I'm the um, uh, professor um, at the European University Institute, the School of Transnational Governance, where I am the chair of the executive board of the European Digital Media Observatory, and I'm the dean of Catholica Global School of Law in Lisbon. Okay, so I think the, the first thing that was interesting to know or that we wanted to ask Professor Madura was if he could sum up the huge changes that digital media has brought it's not only social media, um, how it differs from traditional media, but also uh, how this might change the political landscape and how it is indeed already changing the political landscape. Exactly. So it's not only social media, but also the speed and the, uh, the quick turnaround of news in digital media. Uh, that is the interest of Professor Maduro. Mm -hmm. and, and I think he also told us that he believes that um, there are some qualities that social media has that help fringe uh, parties. 
So let's just listen what he had to say. The algorithms work uh, um, on the basis of very different criteria than the traditional journalist criteria. And the criteria that uh, determines how algorithms use is mostly driven by the business model of the social networks. It's not mm -hmm. uh, uh, driven by considerations of political pluralism, of balance, of credibility of sources. It is what uh, attracts more attention and therefore drives people to more hits and produces more money on the mm -hmm. part of social networks that gets more relevant. At the heart of social media is something that we don't see in traditional media, and uh, those are algorithms. So basically what we're talking about is that it's automated decision-making by computers. One of the things that we know, uh, as I said, is that algorithms are driven by, basically by um, what, what generates more interest in people on an instinctive basis. And in, we know that neuroscience tells us uh, it is things that tend to shock people, tend to drive the, to alert the emotional side more, uh, even if when people don't like them. <laughs> uh, whether people like them or dislike them, it's things that shock them that tend to drive more their attention and therefore tend to be amplified more by the algorithms and tend to be more widely disseminated, get more salience in terms of these editorial processes of algorithms. What does this mean? more radicalization, more polarization, because those are the things that the algorithms more pick up and make more visible. So all of this sounds like French parties know better what they're doing. And uh, I think you asked him uh, whether we can attribute this deliberate will to, uh, to exploit social media. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, and I think he had a really interesting answer. Let's just listen in. I cannot tell you, uh, because I have no we have no empirical data for that, that there is explicit intentional strategies on the part of any party to ex uh, explore uh, these uh, uh, by purposely choosing messages that they know that are going to shock more people and because of that will get more visibility. But of course, uh, I mean, uh, um, one sees that kind of uh, speech being disseminated, so one could assume uh, that they know at least, because that they see, that whenever they speak more radically and more violently, uh, that they get more visibility. That they can see, no? They can see that mm -hmm. tweets and uh, posts uh, that use that kind of language, that get visibility. So uh, naturally, they will tend to learn from that in a negative way, learn, but in a negative way, that the more violent their language becomes, the more likely it is that they will get more salient and get more visibility. So algorithms are this black box uh, that we cannot see how they make one tweet or one post more visible than the other. What we do see is the result that actually the more popular tweets or posts on social media get even more visibility and are pushed uh, to more people. And we saw that the far-right Shega party was actually getting a lot of attention for its tweets about vaccine mandates in Portugal. Disproportionate attention compared to much larger and much more established uh, political parties, if we only look at retweets and favorites on Twitter. 
So the Shega party is the, the party that we were talking about before, which went from, I believe, or one seat in the Portuguese parliament to 12 in, uh, port in the Portuguese election that uh, took place just about a year ago. Exactly. Something important to remember is that when we talk to experts while working on this episode in Portugal last year, they told us and they elaborated a lot on the inspirations that the Portuguese far right draws from other European countries. And we also found trends around the way uh, different political powers talk about uh, vaccine mandates in France, in the Netherlands, in Portugal, even though these countries had a completely different situation. Exactly. And I think one thing that was very surprising when we went back and um, a year ago after Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, when we looked at France and we looked at the Netherlands, we found part parties who were um, on the far right wing of the political spectrum were more likely to um, retweet pro-Russian, pro-Putin, and anti-Ukraine tweets or uh, to tweet themselves. So not only retweeting, but tweeting themselves. Exactly. We can link to that episode as well in the description box. And, you know, we asked Professor Maduro about this, and uh, here's what he had to say. You've seen both on the extreme right and the extreme left throughout Europe and um, uh, different positions being taken in this respect. We know that whoever supports Russia is on the extremes and uh, it's fringe parties. But in some countries have been more extreme left parties, in other ones have been more extreme rights. And in some countries, it has been a mix of both. Uh, in Portugal, it's more the radical left that has taken a position more favorable to Russia than the populists of the right. And so the populists of the right have basically been silent on, uh, on that. They, have been, they haven't been strong supporters of Ukraine. Uh, and here I'm talking of the party of Shega, of Ventura. They haven't been strong supporters of Ukraine, but have also not taken positions uh, um, that feed on the disinformation narratives of, of Russia. Instead, uh, the party that has most strongly taken a position favorable to Russia is the, is the Communist Party in Portugal. And the Communist Party in Portugal has a long traditional relationship, first with Soviet Union, then with Russia. They are really ortho orthodox, and they've been basically they've been spreading the idea that Ukraine uh, basically is a neo-Nazi regime, uh, that that uh, uh, that it is Ukraine that provoked Russia. They've bought into these. Uh, they, cl they claim that their only interest is peace, but that peace is to be guaranteed by Europe not supporting Ukraine, that is only feeding the war. Um, they basically are the ones that are more widely spreading this, this narrative. There's the left bloc that has been slightly ambiguous. It seemed to, to be close to the Russian position support. Then they realized that they were uh, probably going to suffer a strong backlash because the public opinion has very strongly supported Ukraine and Portugal and they backtrap into a closer position to Ukraine. Now it, it depends on the members of the party and, and the days too. Sometimes they, they are more, um, they open up to the Russian position, other times they, 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 they backtrack on that. 
Mm-hmm. But the, the party that has more strongly endorsed uh, and reproduced the disinformation narratives on the war of Russia has been in Portugal, the Communist Party. What Professor Maduro told us about Portugal surprised us a little bit. Yeah, what we also found was that there's what I would call maybe energy disinformation, that we have um, powers trying to build a case in the media against the Ukraine. So basically saying this war is bad because the war is going to drive up gas prices. And it's also not worth uh, helping because then our poor, poor citizens will suffer from rising gas prices. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we have had, we have seen, as you know, Germany is, is quite dependent or was quite dependent on Russian gas. Um, and we have seen... And this was actually just uh, at the end of last year, at the end of 2022, that uh, gas prices were extremely high and um, people were quite afraid that they wouldn't be able to, um, you know, pay their energy bills, pay their gas bills. Exactly. So we wondered, did this happen in Portugal? None of us speaks Portuguese. So we asked Professor Madura. Uh, that kind of discourse also on the war basically saying supporting Ukraine is bad because it's feeding the war and therefore means higher energy prices for the people and everything there. In Portugal is basically the discourse of the Communist Party. The Chega has not made, make use of that, of that speech. And I think it's because part of Chega is really hardcore conservatives that were anti-communist and anti-Russia from the start, so they don't want... They, it will be a country it will be complicated for them to to have that kind of discourse what i was very interested in and this goes back to one of the first discussions that we had or one of the first interviews that you, that we had you remember which was um alice herasimenko in oxford in the in the uk that um anti-vaccine tweets um and basically the political structures and the messaging, messaging structures that are being built up on the back of anti-vaccine tweets um, may be a pathway for uh, new parties and new radical parties to form. And this is something that I think we saw in Germany when we had, like, I'm just going to call it an attempted mini-coup. And these are people who are very active in the anti-vaccine So we asked Professor Maduro uh, if this is something that uh, would also apply to Portugal and to the far-right Chega party. I have no doubt that Chega uh, wants to become uh, a government party. And I think their role is to try to implode the right and center-right to the point that then they become instrumental to do what Salvini almost um, achieved to do and that in fact Front National do did in, 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 in Italy. That is the they become they they fragment so much the political system that then they become the bigger within the center right and they become uh, crucial for any political alternative of government and therefore they will present themselves as unavoidable government. And it buys into the political pro- protest speech. But it is not a party that wants, and Mr. Ventura is not someone that wants to limit himself to be a protest politician. He wants to be in power. He wants to gain power. To a large extent, I mean, you have to realize that 
is a very smart, very intelligent person that I think it's driven much more by political opportunity reasons than by strong ideological convictions. So in the end, the Portuguese political spectrum is quite different and we see that there's a lot of uh, competition on the left. But I think what it does do, I think all of this leads us back to one question and one really important question is um, how do we find a way to, I'm just going to say, live with social media um, without it destroying our democracy? We're not only talking about fringe parties, but how can we... How can we use social media? How can social media be part of our lives without it destroying uh, our democracy? And um, so we asked Professor Maduro what he thought. What can we do? We also need to work at the level of improving the quality of the editorial processes uh, uh, in social networks themselves. What does this mean? For example, uh, uh, accountability of algorithms. What exactly are, uh, what determines the choices of information uh, that algorithms make more easily accessible to us? To limit some of the risks with how algorithms are currently designed, because as I said, they have been designed to monetize uh, information in light of the business model of social networks. They have not been designed as uh, uh, information editorial processes when actually they do that. So we need to know those algorithms, to make them accountable, to uh, scrutinize their criteria, to change their criteria. We might consider to um, impose rules requiring pluralism of algorithms to allow people to choose different algorithms, for example. I think what we found is that a, a mix of regulation and maybe algorithm transparency could go a long way to help us with the issues that we're having today. I think we all have an idea of what to do, but the solution is still so far off. We'll keep on top of that for you. Um, thank you for listening this week. And tune in in two weeks. We will continue talking about fringe parties. In the meantime, you can find us on social media because whatever we say about it, we're still there. We're still on Twitter or on Facebook and Instagram. Exactly. And you can find us on our website, www.theinoculation.com, where you can find all of our past episodes and transcripts to all the episodes and um, links to everything we discuss in the episodes. Exactly. So bye for now. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye.